Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase. All the while, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Nadia Lazareva is a qualified lawyer with a background in risk management, anti-money laundering, compliance, sanctions, and reputational risk prevention. She has lived and worked in mainland China and Hong Kong since 2009 and has trained extensively in the areas noted above across Asia-Pacific. She now works at HSBC. Nadia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Nadia, you are originally from Russia, but have been in, in Hong Kong for quite a while. Can you tell us about the path that took you to where you are? Absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. I was uh, born and raised in Russia, in Moscow, and uh, after I've graduated from a law school in Moscow, I wanted to go abroad. And at that point, most people uh, living on the in the west of Russia would go to Germany or France or the UK. But I have been studying Mandarin for a couple of years by then, so it seemed like a good idea to try and do things a little bit differently and go to the east. So I ended up in Shanghai doing a Mandarin course for a year. And throughout that year, I've uh, visited Hong Kong and I realized that this is probably one of the most magnificent places that I have ever been to. I was absolutely fascinated by the city, by the mixture of green and uh, crazy areas and the skyline and the business life there. So I've started looking for opportunities to move to Hong Kong. And I have to admit that it took me a while because at first I've, I've applied to do my master's degree there and I wasn't admitted because my English wasn't good enough to do that. So I spent another six months looking for jobs and I ended up finding a job with a small Russian consultancy firm in Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, so now it's been 10 years. I never thought I would stay for 10 years, but um, so far it's a really interesting place to be. Hey, not bad, not bad. I had to test you because a lot of people, a lot of foreigners don't take the time to learn Cantonese if they end up in Southeast China. So kudos to you. So uh, a lot of fun to hear that. And I used to get mistaken for a Russian when I was in China. I would I would speak Mandarin and they would say, where are you from? I'd say, why don't you guess? I say, you're Russian, right? And I said, no. I said, why do you think I'm Russian? They said, because I had a big nose. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but that was always how the conversation <laughs> went, right? It was, it was They went to the big nose and said, we know you're Westerner, but you definitely are Russian. I think I think the big nose was because I was a Westerner and the Chinese was because I was 
uh, Russian, it was because I was Chinese, right? I was speaking Chinese. So I think that uh, I took it as a compliment. And Russian has always been on my list of languages to learn. So I might as well try and make it formal at some point and spend some time learning. Yeah, big nose is a very interesting is a very interesting comment. I've had that comment being said uh, not to my face, but for example, I would be on a train in front of a couple of people, and then I would hear them discussing that I have a big nose. So I, at first, I thought it was uh, unpleasant, but actually later I realized that maybe it is a compliment, and I should be proud of my nose. <laughs> That's great. And so I'm very curious about your time. Uh, learning Chinese. I mean, Fred and I have studied China and, you know, politically, ling linguistically for quite a while. And so we love other, uh, other China enthusiasts. So why did you start, why did you pick Mandarin to start studying? Was it just, did someone encourage you to do that, like a professor or a teacher? Or did you say, well, I, I want to be engaged with the outside world? And, and what's the up and coming language, uh, you know, and, and country that I should be involved with? I think my approach was actually absolutely driven by practicality. So about the three years or four years before I moved to Shanghai, I w started going to trade fairs and I would go with um, small Russian businesses to help them translate from English into Russian. And very quickly on my first trip, I realized that you don't go very far in China if you can only speak English from, you know, details like um, ordering something into your room or getting about to actually being able to speak to the people who own factories who are uh, engaging in, in the business with the people you're coming with. So I've uh, started learning Mandarin as, a, as I went back to Moscow. I've started learning in order to be able to get around China and connect with uh, Chinese businessmen to, to a greater extent. And this has proven to be a great investment because even though I didn't, of course, become fluent in six months or a year because I don't think anyone can do it with Mandarin, but it has given this great sense of freedom that you can actually, you know, take a train, go where you need to be and not be um, stopped by the fact that you are unable to communicate. One thing that I neglected to mention during my introduction is that Nadia was my classmate at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. That's where we first met in the city. And this is a good lead up to, to my next question, which has to do with the experience of working at a large world-class organization like, like HSBC. Uh, I think that for me, at least, it is fair to say that HSBC has been very closely intertwined with, with my time in, in Hong Kong. That's where I did my banking. I, I still have my bank accounts there. There might be other examples out there, but it's hard for me to think of another financial institution that is as synonymous, really, with, with Hong Kong, with a particular place as, as HSBC is with, with Hong Kong. A lot of that has to do, of course, with, with the history, the alliance outside the uh, headquarters building, that, that whole story. And for me, literally, I had to, I had to walk through one of the HSBC buildings in Kowloon to get to the metro. Every day, my, my commute literally took me through a, an HSBC building. So with that being said, please tell us about your experience working at the bank. For me, I have to admit that I'm I'm a big fan of HSBC, and I think a lot of people um, in relation to the corporate world perhaps either love it or hate it. Um, 
for me, I every time I say that I work for HSBC, I do feel a small ting of pride because in Hong Kong, it is the bank. If you're talking to anyone who is local in Hong Kong, you don't say I work for HSBC. You say I work for the Hong Kong bank. It is the institution, the, the, the main financial institution in the jurisdiction. And so many things are built around it. Um, for me, I think HSBC has given me a number of things that would have been much more challenging to get elsewhere. I think the first thing, um, the most interesting part are the people you get to work with, because particularly in Hong Kong, uh, particularly in the area where I work, it is extremely diverse. So the team I uh, used to sit in would uh, had uh, 10 or 12 analysts, and we would have probably 10 different passports sitting in the same room. And this diversity of thought, of backgrounds, for me was very stimulating, because this was exactly the environment I would be hoping to work in as I'm living and working abroad. And another thing is understanding how the financial system operates, because as Fred uh, mentioned, I am, I'm a lawyer by background, so I, I have never previously worked in anything related to finance. And then day by day, very slowly, um, unpacking what does a huge international financial institution do is actually very uh, fascinating if you don't have that kind of background. And the third thing which I think is unique about a large international organization is the mobility, because you are quite encouraged to move horizontally. So you are very welcome to apply for jobs in London or New York or Jersey or Vietnam, any jurisdiction where your skill set would be applicable. Um, it's quite encouraging to go and move there. And in addition to that, there is mobility in terms of functions. So if you're a compliance person, but you have interest, you have um, curiosity to try something else, chances are that gradually by building up your network, by expanding your skill set, you would be able to get there. You could gradually try yourself in other risk functions or in business functions. So you have an opportunity to have several careers without actually leaving the organization. So what advice would you give to women and girls in our audience who might be thinking of a career in banking? I think the main piece of advice would be just go for it. Um, I think these days, the banks have a lot of motivation to build up their female talent. There is a huge drive for having more diversity, for building more inclusive environments. So I think we are very lucky to be here and now because actually being a younger female probably helps you to get more out of your career with financial institutions compared to a couple of years ago. I think for Women, especially for young women, sometimes we lack confidence and uh, we are not sure we've got something to bring to the table. So something that took me a very long time to learn and understand that it doesn't matter how senior is the meeting I'm sitting in. Nobody else at the table has gone through the same experience in their careers as I did. So even though some of those people could be much more senior, much more experienced, uh, much more advanced in banking, there's 
high likelihood that I know things that they wouldn't have thought of. So this um, ability to speak up, ability to enunciate your thoughts and uh, present them at the table, I think for me is key because I often meet young women who are um, afraid of coming across as incompetent. And I think it's more common among women than among men because of our upbringing and some of the social factors. So I always admire girls who go in there and speak their mind without considering the seniority or the status of other people, especially in Asian environments like Hong Kong, it would be quite common for hierarchy to limit the ability to speak up. But uh, those who are able to overcome it, I think, tend to go a very long way. It's interesting. It's taken me a lot of years in my professional career to get comfortable saying, I don't know the answer to that question, or I don't know, or I need to look into it more. It's not something that's bred into us in law school it's something that you really learn as being part of kind of a functional business environment where people know you have some experience and some expertise, but there's no way that you'll know everything. I think, you know, sharing your experience and, and just telling people about that and saying there will be a times when you need to say, I don't know. And, and it's completely OK to do that. And we certainly as peers shouldn't point our fingers at others when, when they say they don't know, because there's no way that we will all have the same experience and the same depth in, in every area. I absolutely agree. And I think in the end, this ability to say, I don't know, or I need to I need to research that leads us to working in more competent, more confident teams, because people are not afraid of making mistakes or double checking. And there is no encouragement to kind of um, talk your way through an issue you actually don't know nothing about. I think it's great when we can avoid those lengthy conversations about um, something really unsubstantiated. I always have Fred double check my work. I just assume that it's going to be wrong and he'll, he'll fix what's wrong with it. Right, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> You're very lucky to have Fred. I know. I know. <laughs> well, 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 thank you, Nadia. That is uh, reassuring to know that that's the way I came across to people that I met in the, in the past. Speaking of young women, you are a single mother to an adorable little girl. Unfortunately, I have only been able to see her on Facebook, hopefully be before too long. And before she grows too much, I'll have a chance to, to meet her in, in person. But uh, I'd like to ask you about how successful have you been at finding an appropriate balance between your career and taking care of your daughter? My view on um, being a single mom is if there is a good place in the world to do that, that's actually Hong Kong. And actually, if there was a perfect time for that situation, it could be 2020. And I, uh, you know, talking about this year, this is we, we rarely give it praise. But what I find is uh, in Hong Kong, it is affordable to have uh, full-time live-in help. So usually for someone working even at a fairly junior level in the banking industry, um, the salary of your full-time help would probably be about 10-15% of your total income. So it is um, much lower proportion of your household income compared to Western countries. Um, so most most women who work have this ability uh, to have help. And I think it's an absolute game changer because one thing is having childcare, but another thing is having childcare who could 
um, look after your child if you if you want to go out for dinner, who could look after your child if you want to go work out. So you are not just um, you, you don't just have two elements of your life, which is work and a child, but you also have an ability to have some time for yourself, which is where which is absolutely key for your mental health, your personal development and basically not just going insane when you're really, really busy. And um, in terms of 2020, I think this year has brought us so much flexibility, at least here in Hong Kong, in HSBC, the flexible working now has an absolutely new meaning. Before, uh, Hong Kong was not the most um, accepting place in terms of flexible working. Some teams would practice it, some teams won't. But these days, because uh, because it's a necessity, this is just how things go, it's absolutely appropriate. And as you develop in your flexible working, you start um, figuring out how to move your hours around because many of us have late night calls with different time zones. Um, you start figuring out how to carve out maybe an hour before lunch to play with your kid uh, because you can start earlier, you can finish later. So I feel like I'm actually um, in charge of my time to a much greater extent than I would have been a couple of years ago. And this is very empowering. This means that I, I, I am the one who can decide um, when I'm doing work and when I'm seeing my child and how to reconcile uh, the two areas of my life. So let's talk about the bank specifically. What do you do there? You work in compliance, but can you tell us kind of day to day what things you're dealing with? What is your clientele composed of and, and where are they in the world? The compliance function in HSBC is probably the largest compliance function in the world. And it is very diverse in terms of different teams, different functionalities. So we do have people looking after regulatory requirements. We have very big teams looking at financial crime element because of the mere size of the bank's operations. I sit within financial crime uh, and within financial crime team, I am working on the proactive risk mitigation side, which means that my job consists of looking for emerging trends and then analyzing how those trends could potentially affect criminal behavior and how this could reflect in HSBC books. So this is a very um, unique position for the bank and uh, not many financial institutions in the world have those teams who are uh, looking at things proactively so it's a very it's a fairly new fairly niche space and i would say that it's extremely interesting so an example of a piece of work that i could be doing would be RCP, so the recent economic partnership agreement signed between uh, 15 states in asia my job would be to have a look, what does the agreement actually entail? How does it change the environment those countries operate in? And then for each of the undertaking of that agreement, see how could it change the financial crime behavior? So if the tariffs are being lowered or simplified, uh, what can we see in the customs area? Do we expect to see less bribery, more bribery, bribery going around in a different way? And so for everything that happens externally, this is the type of analysis that I would be conducting which uh, keeps you on your toes in terms of developments across the world. Of course, I focus much more on Asia Pacific than the rest of the world, but uh, also everything is 
relevant. And at the same time, it helps you learn a lot about how the bank operates because uh, my, my stakeholders, my clientele are uh, are the compliance people who need to make sure our controls are appropriate. And then also senior management across the bank who needs to make a higher level, macro level decisions. And as you are tailoring your products, your reports, your briefs to that group of people, you need to make sure that you understand what is the bank doing. If I'm talking about a risk in Vietnam, I need to know what does the bank look in Vietnam? What uh, lines of business do we have? What products do we have? How big is the customer base? Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to give a recommendation that's specific enough for my stakeholder to actually consider it or take it on board. Just a quick follow-up question. People in, on your team, do you have specific uh, geographical areas that you focus on? Or are you looking perhaps at, at particular industries or is, is there a, a more random distribution of, of the workload? Um, we actually have a, a mixture of those. So everybody on the team would have a focus. So for most people, it would be a geography plus a subject matter expertise. So for example, you would have somebody who is looking at everything India plus at everything human trafficking. And this wouldn't mean that the person is looking at human trafficking in India. It would just be uh, two streams of work the person is responsible for to ensure those areas are covered. Uh, for me, I have been focusing on the Belt and Road Initiative from the perspective of funds going out of mainland China into the rest of the world and uh, large infrastructure projects. So clearly, risk assessments are, are a big part of, of what you do. Um, but I'd like to now, wh while sticking to the subject of, of risk, I'd like to, to turn the lens back to you and, and ask you about your biggest risk. What is the biggest risk that, that you've taken in your career? And, and perhaps you could, you could specifically address those folks out there that might be considering uh, a risky move. What are what, what is some of the advice that you would give them based on, on your own experiences? I think the biggest risk I have ever taken is moving from a position of a team leader in a smaller firm where I was well regarded and I felt like I'm doing really well. I'm contributing to the business a lot. So I left that job and went to work for an international law firm um, in a most junior role in the risk management team. And the reason why I say it was a risk because in my, in my team leader role, um, I felt like I was really good at what I've been doing because I've been doing it for some time. I had great report with my team. I had great report with my bosses. So I was thriving. And the only reason for me to make the move was to experience what it's like working for an international law firm. So I kind of gave up all of that um, environment that I've been working in and that feeling of being good at what you do to go into something completely unknown and being somebody very junior and having a number of people um, in the team tell you what to do. And um, so I think if I'm being um, open about it and transparent about it, um, the transition wasn't easy because um, I've I've missed 
being a manager, I've missed getting things done. So I've moved from getting things done to, you know, doing research for somebody else who would make a decision. But at the same time, the experience of working for Magic Circle Law Firm, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world, uh, largely because if I haven't tried it, I would have probably still looking for that opportunity to try a magic circle firm because for somebody who is a lawyer by background, spends so much time studying law and English legal system, those types of firms are your your dream place, unless especially if, you, if you've never worked for one, you're imagining it to be a kind of a paradise. Or maybe it's just me, but I was completely romanticizing how things work. So I think having been inside the firm, you just learned that, you know, it it is it is great, but it's also very similar to any other firm in the world. It's not it's not the Hogwarts or a Harry Potter environment where things are uh, completely different. I think that move also has um, it has affected me financially because I, um, I I took a small pay cut and usually when you do that it takes a few years to go back to where you used to be but um, at the same time I still I still think it's been it's been worth doing that I'm picturing you showing up at the magic circle law firm and saying what you, you promised me magic where is the magic people right <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly what what was going on in my head I was like oh Okay. <laughs> well, and you raise a great point, which is, you know, we go to law school, those of us who are lawyers, we go to law school, we think, you know, it's going to be one way. And often it's very, very different. I tell this to law students who I talk to all the time when they want career advice about how to become an international business lawyer. And then, of course, you raise the interesting question of if you're at a law firm and you're happy, you're doing well, you know, small firm, big firm, when do you transition to a more, uh, you know, in-house role? Or do you stick with the law firm life? I mean, it's the kind of thing that I think all of us kick around from time to time, which is, you know, how happy am I? Will I be happier somewhere else? And I think that's a function of a lot of different things. But I think that a lot of us think about that, right? We process it and say, well, what's my satisfaction here? And, and am I more likely to have a good experience somewhere else? I always find myself checking my gut on that. I love what I do now at our firm. And, and it's hard to think of where I would be more happy doing the kind of work we're doing. Fred and I get to do this podcast as part of our work, and uh, and it's a lot of fun, right? We get to connect with our old friends. We get to meet a lot of people from around the world, and uh, it's the kind of quality of life thing that you can't really quantify. So if you were to start over again, would you choose a different path? Would you have made any different decisions? Um, that's a great question, because if I look at my career path objectively as an outsider, I did quite a number of things that were unnecessary. So if you were to look at my CV, uh, it might be a little bit shocking because I do have four law degrees, which is ridiculous. If you ever meet anyone with four law degrees, please introduce me because this would probably be my soulmate. So I was, I was very keen on becoming a lawyer. And first I had a Russian law degree because that's where I studied and a German. Uh, so I had Russian bachelors and a master's from Germany because there was just a good an opportunity to do that. And then I had my Chinese business law degree, which is where I've met Fred. Uh, but 
I came to Hong Kong and I straight in went to do my master's in Chinese business law, thinking it would be such a great idea because I'm a lawyer, I speak Russian, I speak some Mandarin, this is going to be great. And one thing that I didn't take into account at that time is that Hong Kong is actually filled by um, Chinese qualified lawyers who speak way better Mandarin than I do and have much better understanding of Chinese legal system. So what's my niche there? I... I don't think there has ever been a niche, niche, but um, at the time I did not quite realize that. So after all of that soul searching, I decided that I still want to persevere and try to get qualified in Hong Kong. So I did another thing, which was an English law degree, which I was doing part time, which was very challenging because English legal system is so different from Russian, German, Chinese that I've studied before, all of the case law. Um, it was quite overwhelming in addition to a full-time job. So this journey of um, of law, I think a number of steps in that journey weren't necessary. But at the same time, when I get interviewed for jobs, I think one thing that comes out from my CV is perseverance because you could see that this woman just never gives up like she keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and for a number of people this is a quality they're looking for in in the people they hire so um yeah I don't know what advice would I give to my past self actually because I think it did pay off to an, to an extent, but at the same time, when I look back on years when I was starting part-time and working full-time and didn't sleep for like three years, uh, I also do feel a little bit so sorry for my younger self. It's funny. I've thought about that too. I don't think that I would believe myself if I went back in the past as myself to talk to myself. I don't think I would believe myself, right? I'd say, yeah, 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 sure. Well, let me figure this out on my own old guy, right? And so... I figure that, that that's where, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't have done anything differently. In your experience in Hong Kong at the Magic Circle Firm echoes the experience of one of my good friends who is also at a Magic Circle Firm in Hong Kong. And he was the same way. He's, he's actually, his Mandarin's better than mine. His Cantonese is better than mine. Uh, and uh, he's just straight out smarter than I am. But he even he said he would walk into a room and he kind of got, you know, jaded a bit because he said, what am I doing? I'm not adding anything here because, you know, the top Chinese lawyers in the room are, you know, have better Chinese than I do, have uh, a better pedigree than I do. And they, uh, you know, and they have a better understanding of the Chinese relationship, right? I mean, they, he said, he said, I get it. Like, you know, for a, for a Westerner, I'm, you know, I'm about as high as you can get. Uh, I just can't make any more progress because of the, of the caliber of people that I'm, that I'm up against. So it's interesting to hear you echo that uh, in your experience as you were trying to figure out what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's absolutely how I felt. Because the intricacies, even if if you do learn the language impeccably and your subject matter expertise is amazing, the um, intricacies of the relationships and winning trusts of clients and things associated with that, I think this is a completely new level of the game. And it's very rare that a foreigner is able to um, excel in that area. Continuing on this topic a little bit, just to add my two cents, I mean, it, it is an interesting question, right? I'm, I'm just thinking, what, what would I tell my younger self? And I think one of the, the things that, that is important to keep in mind, that I, at least for me, when I, when I reflect on this topic, 
is that perhaps looking back, right, when with everything that that we've learned along the way and and with the perspective that we have, it's tempting to say, well, I shouldn't have done that. You know, that perhaps was a a waste of time or I should have done A instead of B. But I think in my own case, when when I look back and put myself in the shoes of my younger self, I think that in most instances, even if it was not perhaps the best decision possible, in, in most cases, it was at least a, a rational decision that, that made sense given the, the, the circumstances. So that's something to, to keep in mind uh, as well. But um, while we're on this, on this subject, generally, we were, we're talking about the past. Let's look at the, at the future. Uh, Nadia, in, in, in your case, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do uh, you think you'll go back to Russia? You, you think you'll, you'll stick around Hong Kong? Is there perhaps a return to the mainland in store for you or maybe some new destination? Oh, I wish uh, I, I wish somebody else could answer that question for me and give me a crystal ball to um, see how things would go. Um, I'm going to say that I'm not, I'm not keen on going back to Russia for a number of reasons, but um, my family is no longer in Russia. A number of my friends live and work across the globe, so I don't feel like there is a lot to go back to and... Um, out of my 30 years, I've spent 10 in Hong Kong. So Russia is really a, a childhood home rather than um, an actual place I've, I've worked and developed in. And also, um, since I've never worked in Russia and I've always worked in international companies, I think it could be quite challenging to um, to completely change the environment. I've heard this from a number of experts who work abroad for most of their lives and then when they go back they actually they're not local enough to fit well into the culture and the corporate corporate culture but at the same time they're not foreigners so they're not treated as foreigners and this creates um, a bit of a challenge with how you function how you operate Um, yeah so that that's russia in terms of other countries i'm very i'm very open to to trying new things, trying something new. I think now I've reached the stage where I've spent enough time in Hong Kong to be able to go somewhere else for some time and then go back if I if I felt like it because I have um, I have my home here and um, I would not want to give that up. Uh, in my ideal universe, I would like to imagine myself in Europe because this is a part of the world that I haven't lived in and living in Hong Kong it's quite challenging to to travel uh, I mean you can still go a few times a year but it's just too far uh, takes too long to get there and so on so I would really welcome a change a complete change of a geographic region so it could be Europe I wouldn't mind trying Middle East or Latin America just to experience a completely different environment but I would go uh, not to a place, but to an interesting job opportunity. This is something I've been quite um, uh, conscious of in the last couple of years, that I would I would go where good, interesting work leads me. Because I think if you have a job that stimulates you and satisfies you, then the location is actually of lesser importance. You bring up an excellent point. I just need to jump on that. I think this is something that, especially people who are interested in a, in a career overseas or, or who are interested in having an experience in a, in a different place, th- there is a tendency, 
And I think it's an understandable one to focus on the place, right? Like, oh, I, I wish I could go and, and work in London or there are opportunities in this place, but I don't like that place, so I, I will not go there. And your point is spot on. Really, what matters is the job to which you're moving. That's not to say that where you are isn't relevant. It, it is, of course. But I, I certainly would encourage people who are considering going overseas or, or who are already overseas and are looking for, for that next experience to, to look beyond the place uh, itself. Because from experience, I know that sometimes you, know, you can have a, a great experience in a place that maybe is not so great, uh, at least according to your standards and vice versa. And I think for me, Hong Kong is, is a great example of that. I, I had moments in Hong Kong where I was not happy at all with, with my job situation. And the fact that I was in, in, in a great city, as is Hong Kong, didn't really make up for the fact that I had a crappy job. And there were other moments when the work was, was, was good and, and then everything changes, right? Then, then that's where you enjoy the, the work, you enjoy the, the city, and then everything goes well. But, but there are certainly scenarios out there where you could be in a place that's challenging in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the conditions in a particular city, in terms of the culture, but the work itself might be so rewarding that it, on balance, makes it, makes it worthwhile. So excellent point. Nadio, thank you for being with us today on, on our show. We absolutely have loved getting your insights and reminiscing about Hong Kong and certainly learning from you and your perspective all the time you've spent on the eastern part of the, of the world. Uh, we like to close asking our guests a question, which is, do you have anything for our listeners that you recommend uh, we could read, we could listen to, we could watch that would help broaden our horizons? Uh, anything at all, really? Yeah, one book that I've recently read, and I'm afraid my recommendation is not going to be original at all, is uh, called In My Own Words, and it's uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's book, and it's a collection of her writing and uh, her speeches and then um, some of the episodes from her life. And um, there are a couple of reasons why this book has really resonated with me, and so I first listened to an audiobook and I found the audiobook so interesting that I actually ended up being a paperback and I ended up going through the paperback making notes because the quality of um, arguments in some of her speeches and the uh, specific phrasing that she uses is absolutely amazing and I think this is something if you especially if you're not a native speaker and you're working in an environment where you need to persuade people and you need to um, influence people to make the right decisions which is often the case in my job uh, actually borrowing some of the language that she uses I think could be very powerful so I, I loved the book not just from a perspective of you know female um, uh, leadership journey and fight for equality, but also the the mere quality of the language and the argument is something I wish I could learn. So I think just uh, taking it from the book is one thing I can do to improve my <laughs> persuasion skills. It's a great recommendation. Thank you. Fred, what do you have for us? My recommendation this week is an article titled Suspected Chinese Spy Targeted California politicians. It appeared on Axios and it was written by Bethany Allen 
Ibrahimian and Sack Dorfman. And basically, the subject of the article is a, a woman originally from, well, she's back in China now, so she's originally and currently from China, but who spent quite a bit of time uh, in, in California. And it is alleged that she targeted uh, local politicians, uh, relatively low-level politicians, in an effort to advance China's interests. Many interesting angles, of course, if you're, if you're looking at it from a China perspective, it gives uh, some perspective regarding the efforts that, that China is, is undertaking to, to influence uh, local politics. More generally, if you have any interest in espionage, it should be of interest as well. But I think there's also a, a human interest aspect to it. Reading the story, I couldn't help but, but wonder you know, how much of what was happening was part of some uh, master plan by, by the um, MSS in Beijing. You know, here's what you will do. Here's who, you know, here's the person you will target and here's how you will target them. Um, in, in some cases, the connections were intimate between this woman and, and her targets. Um, but I can't help but wonder how much of that was following a strict plan to do it and how much of it is just happenstance and human behavior. People have this idea, I think, that perhaps over overestimate the level of, of control that countries can have over this, this sort of uh, interaction. So anyway, enough said. Suspected Chinese spy targeted California politicians. Obviously, the link will be provided on the posts. Jonathan, what about you? I need to get on the record that I can be bribed with Reese's peanut butter cups in case anyone's <laughs> listening and wants to send some my way. My kids already know this and they would spill the beans to anybody for candy, right? So I have no secrets. I have no expectation of privacy in my life and I do like peanut butter cups. So uh, my recommendation this week, it's an article from The Federalist by an author called Sumantra Maitra. And the article is also about China. It's called To Stop China's Imperial Designs, Let It Bleed Itself Dry. This is an economic perspective on imperialism. He talks a little bit about the United States uh, and about China and about how it's kind of axiomatic that an empire will build itself so big to the point that it will collapse, right? There's no way to sustain an ever-growing empire. Happened with the Brits. Russians had trouble with it. China is having trouble with it. U.S. is pulling back now. You know, we've we've seen pullback under President Trump from saying we're, we're going to go and, and mold the world after our image. And we'll see what, what President Biden's going to do with that. Uh, but it's interesting. Obviously, I'm in a lot of conversations all the time about, you know, what happens, what's happening in China now? Where's China going? Um, you know, what do we do about China? Is there any way to change China? What's China's future going to look like? And so I, I think this article is an important part of that conversation, which is, uh, you know, is China going to change things on its own? Is the government going to change? Are the people going to change the government? Or are we just going to have to let... China do its thing and spend its money and bleed itself dry to the point where it has to pull back. So interesting thoughts, interesting concepts, and certainly recommend that article to stop China's imperial designs, let it bleed itself dry. Nadia, we want to thank you again for being with us. We hope we can catch up with you again, and we wish you well in your work at the bank and your work raising your daughter. And certainly we'll look forward to seeing what you're up to. Thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.